there, and welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfond, and joining me for, I guess, a belated free agency edition of the show. We had meant to record over the weekend. We had some technical issues, which is nothing new for us, but now that some of the dust has settled on the free agency period, joining me to do that, of course, is my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. Yeah, it's always interesting because for us who are actually in it and working it and, you know, the first two days of free agency, we're trying to provide analysis on the app of pretty much every deal that gets agreed to, definitely all the big ones. So for us, it always kind of feels busy and like it's, uh, you know, free agency madness. But then you kind of sit back and take it all in and look at it and you're like, "Eh, there was, you know a lot of stagnation around the league because a lot of guys just resigned and uh, you know, some guys changed teams and for the most part, like Fred Van Lee was the biggest name to change teams in f- via free agency. It was right. a lot of guys resigning. So I'm curious to know almost like if outside of our little bubble, people that are fans, people that are kind of just sitting there waiting for the action. I mean, if they're coming out of these couple of days, probably not thinking the same as us. Like, oh, that was a busy couple of days. A lot of stuff happened. They're probably coming out of it being like, man, not a lot happened. The league looks similar to what it did like last month. I mean, I think it's been trending this way for a while, right? Like in the last CBA, the extension rules changed, which allowed teams to offer extensions earlier. In the new CBA, they're going to be able to offer extensions that go up you know, 140% of the player's previous salary, whereas before it was 120%. So I think we're going to start to see it trend even more in this direction where... And it's a lot the, of things too, just starting to drop, but it's also like, it's even things like the fact that there's no longer going to be a limit on how many five-year yeah. uh, rookie extensions players can be on a team. You know, it's the, like the all designated, those little, The designated right. rookie max. Yeah. yeah. So... Yeah, all these kind of factors, I feel like, have coalesced into what is now a little bit more of an underwhelming free agency period and more of an active, especially on the star front, trade market, where the MO now is not, you know, sign a short-term deal, angle for free agency when you can control your destination. I think players are finding they can control, at least to a certain extent, control their destination regardless lock in that extension, get, you know, the long-term financial security, and then find an opportune time to force your team's hand and get moved somewhere else. And that's the biggest transactions nowadays tend to happen on the trade market. And that feels like a good place to start because we can segue into what has now happened with two of the bigger star guards in the league. Uh, You know, we can quibble, I guess, over the extent of that stardom for you know at least one of those players who is at the tail end of his prime if not completely past it but despite being only one year older than the other guy we're talking about exactly uh i mean i think we're also maybe to a certain extent seeing the limitations of that you know when you lock i mean damian lillard has has what four years left on his contract Three guaranteed years and a $62.7 million player option in 2026-27. Essentially four years. So, look, I guess at the end of the day, when KD went through this, he got to the team that he wanted to go to. Maybe that's going to happen for Dame too. Maybe he is going to ultimately wind up in Miami and this will have worked out exactly the way that he wanted to. 
But, you know, we're saying if you want to go this route where, you know, it's not free agency, you're just going to sign the maximum longest possible term extension with your team that you can. And then whenever you feel like it, whenever it's time, then you ask out, well, you're not necessarily in control of the situation. Who do you think uh, that... you are, Bradley Beal? <laughs> but I mean, that's the thing, right? I think there was at least some expectation, whether it was from Dame and his camp, just kind of feeling like Dame almost did have a no trade because Portland was just sort of going to acquiesce to his every desire. And... I mean, I don't know, like Joe Cronin has at least come out and said that they're not going to do that, that they're going to make the best decision for the organization, which I think is 100% his prerogative and what he should be doing. But, you know, is the market going to be chilled by this notion that Dame is going to be a malcontent if he goes anywhere other than Miami? I guess that's that's the way that these players can sort of create, if not leverage, then at least a disincentive for the teams that they don't want to go to to trade for them. And like that's what Kawhi tried to do once upon a time, right? The Raptors said, forget it. We're trading for you. You know, if you want to sit out the entire season, I guess we can't stop you from doing that. But like come in and like try and win a championship. Like, you know, that's I think ultimately a team, especially with four years on Dame's contract, right? It's not like he can walk at the end of this season. And that's a risk, you know, like the way the Raptors took that risk with Kawhi. He's under contract for four years. What's he going to do? Sit out for four years. D- Dame Lillard of all people who has preached like professionalism and like loyalty and all Never the stuff. If he doesn't grind. get to Miami is, is suddenly going to be a malcontent and he's going to sulk and like ruin his team's locker room. Like this guy has been lauded as being one of the best leaders and culture setters in the game is going to do that. I don't buy it. Yeah, and I think a team out there and the Blazers should absolutely call his bluff. The Blazers should trade him to the highest bidder. And a team out there who wants Damian Lillard that isn't the Miami Heat, that thinks they can get a deal done, should absolutely try to get a deal done. Because as you said, he's got... Okay, even even take the player option away. Imagine he, he went to a place he was so unhappy to go to, he would actually decline a 62.7 million dollar player option at age 36 37 so it's even say it's three years okay that is still a long time as you said Damian Lillard's not sitting out for three years I don't care how unhappy he is when he gets there he is not going to sabotage his own career and then the team he ends up on and like his own potential success but what's he gonna do throw games for three years like whoever trades for him even if maybe the first month is rough or something or it's He's going to take the edge off, whatever. He's eventually going to be Damian Lillard for you for as long as he can. So, yeah, this notion that like, well, you're going to chill the market because like he doesn't want to be there. I don't care. He's got three plus years left on yeah. his contract. And, you know, to your point about how KD eventually kind of, not kind of, he eventually got his way and went to Phoenix, although it took till the middle of the season, even though he had four guaranteed years left on his deal. I would say the difference there is that the team Kevin Durant wanted to go to, while not exactly full of superstar trade assets, like, a, you know, for example, like a Utah or Oklahoma City is right now, they had Mikel Bridges, Cam Johnson, and ended up swapping between swaps and giving up first, what did they give up, four, five picks? Control of four? I think four, four first rounders plus two swaps. Exactly. So yeah. 
the difference there is that the team Kevin Durant wanted to go to had as good, if not one of the best, superstar trade packages yeah. available. I'm sorry, and and look, I like Tyler Hero, and you know, because I've told, like I've said to you, I still have a feeling that's what's gonna happen. I don't want it to happen. I don't think it should. A part of me feels like it still will happen, but I'm sorry, Tyler Hero, salary filler, and like two first rounders and two pick swaps, which is the extent of what Miami can do, is not nearly the same as Mikael Bridges, Cam Johnson, four first rounders and swaps. So that's the no, bro. Did you see Jaime Jaquez's uh, summer league debut the other day? Stock is <laughs> rising. Like it's it's just such a sham. And then. Even in terms of like the, you know, will will the Blazers do right by Dame? Like that whole conversation. Listen, the Portland Trailblazers have done right by Dame. Now you can say there has been incompetence in the way they've built a team around Dame. And from that perspective, they have failed him. Fine, I'll entertain that conversation. But if we're talking on a professional level, the Portland Trailblazers have done right by Dame, just like Damian Lillard has always done right by them. They've paid him the maximum allowable they can pay him under the salary cap, which is obviously a no-brainer. Other teams would have too, but they did that. Uh, if you look at it, it's like, okay, like, Dame, if you wanted to control your own destiny, you should have at some point opted for free agency and played out one of your contracts rather than repeatedly extending them early. He's always done that. He has never come close to hitting free agency because he extends basically at the first opportunity he can did it again last year. He tacked on two more years, one plus a player option, to a deal that still had two years on it because it was the earliest possible he could get that version of a max extension. So it's like, you know, he has made decisions at every turn and understandably so, all the power to him, to maximize his potential earnings. And that's why by the end of his current deal, he'll have made $450 million in the NBA, which the Portland Trailblazers have happily facilitated. Now, he wants out. Again, fair. The Portland Trailblazers doing right by Dane to me in this situation is honoring his trade request. They have him under contract for three plus more years, but he no longer wants to play there. Doing right by him is saying, okay, we'll find the best offer for you. We get what we need. You get what you want, which is just to not be here. And, you know, hopefully it ends up being a contender, which it probably would be if they're trading for you at this stage of your career. That's them doing right by him. Granting him his wish of being traded, but also taking the, a shitty deal so that he lands in his preferred landing spot. Like, that's not doing right by Dame. That's being terrible business people and like horrible asset managers. So I just, I'm so done with that conversation because they yeah. don't. This means oh, more coming from you, heat culture warrior that you are. Yeah, because, because we all know how thrilled you'd be to see Dame wind up in Miami. Oh, you know why? Because. You know what heat cultures? Have some heat culture in the way you run your organization. Don't cower to other teams and like the power of agents and all this stuff. Do the right, like make the best decisions for your organizations. Trading Dame to Miami for that package would not be the best decision. The Blazers don't owe anything other than respect, like respect and professional honesty to Dame. That's all they owe. They don't owe him sending him to his preferred destination for a shittier deal. They owe it to themselves, to the organization, to their fans to make the best possible deal, not to the guy who no longer wants to be there. And I think to that same point, it's like this notion that Aaron Goodwin, who represents Dame, or like other agents around the league or other players around the league are watching this situation intently to see how the Blazers treat Dame on his way out. Again, it's like if a couple years down the road, whether it was an Aaron Goodwin client or 
any other player and their agent, if they were to have the best offer for their client on the table from Portland and turn it down because of what Portland, like where Portland traded Dame to, that would be terrible agenting. Yeah. Like they would be failing their clients in doing so. It's like that is so bogus. I'm not buying it. And I think but, like I the, the really important point you made was, you know, about KD and you can take it back to Anthony Davis too, right? When he disincentivized a team, you know, like Boston or whoever else around the league might've wanted to trade for him with like half a year left on his contract by saying under no circumstances, I'm not going to re-sign with you. The Lakers still gave up the mother load for him, right? At the end of the day, even though he was putting that out there, the Pelicans were still able to get close to, if not the very best offer they possibly could have gotten from any team in trading Anthony Davis. So I agree. Like I, and I, we've been talking about this off air for a while now, so you know where I stand, but like, I just think it would be so sad if they wound up trading him to Miami for that piddling package that the heat have to offer. I just think that would, I think that would set the franchise back a ways. Yeah. Imagine like years from like, uh, Scoot Henderson is just an absolute superstar and whoever else there is, is playing like Shaden Sharp is a star and whoever they potentially get in a Dame trade. Oh, let's just throw Scotty Barnes' name out there. Is a, is a superstar for years from now. And say these guys are all Goodwin clients for some reason at that point. And they, hey, there's no rule now limiting the rookie max extensions number that you can have on a team. Imagine all of those guys get the full five-year rookie max extension offers from Portland. They really going to be like, you know, this is like $50 million more than we can get anywhere else an extra year. But we do not forget what you did to Damian Lillard four years ago in trading him to the non-Miami Heat. So sorry, we're going to take a flamethrower to your franchise now. Not like, no, that's not going to happen. All right. So really quickly, because I want to move on from this topic, any particular Dame suitors or potential Dame suitors that you have in mind that have a better package to offer that you know you think would make the most sense okay so uh I mean a couple that one we've obviously talked about off air and another I kind of just threw out there so um I'll throw two teams out there and I don't even know what the package would look like and I I'd be willing to wager like 99% they're not getting in the mix but OKC and Utah like Mm -hmm. They have the goods like no one else has the goods between draft capital and young talent and all this. And I get it. Probably neither team thinks they're there yet, even though I think they should think that. But to me, one of those teams doing it would be the most fascinating. Like if the Thunder all of a sudden come in this season with Dame and SGA and just good role players with all the young talent they would still have left over after making that deal and the draft capital, they would still have left over after making that deal. I would be absolutely fascinated by how good that team could be because they'd be legit contenders. Utah who accidentally fast tracked their rebuild because Lowry marketing became an absolute offensive star. Walker Kessler looks like a defensive star on the rise. Like if they can find a way to get Dame while say keeping those two guys and you go into next year with Dame, Markinen and a second year Kessler like that's a team in a league that we've you know talked about ad nauseum is more balanced and there's parity like that's a team that would have an outside shot the one we've talked about the most off air I think we've both tweeted about it we're sitting here in Toronto so people probably won't be surprised that we're bringing this up but I I genuinely believe the Raptors would be a good basketball fit for Damian Lillard 
Um, I may or may not be writing about this front filter this week. And one of the things I compared it to was it is not dissimilar to me to the Cavs trading for Donovan Mitchell last year in that there is a team with a defensive infrastructure in place that can protect this guy and desperately needs all of the offensive star qualities that he brings to the table as a three-level scorer, as a shot creator, as a pull-up guy, as a playmaker too. Like the fit to me would be so seamless and would actually amplify both player and team strengths that I, I a little surprised not a lot of people are talking about it. Plus with a, you know, a front office that has made a bold move like this before, except in the case of Dame, okay, he's not as good as Kawhi, obviously, but he also doesn't have the same question marks coming in and he's under contract for longer. So the one, here's the way I would kind of look at it. And this is what I talk about in the script for this Friday. But if you remember last year, because some people will definitely say, okay, well, you you would definitely need to put Scotty on the table. Like, I don't think it would be OG. One, because I think if you're trading for Dame, you're obviously trying to win now. And OG helps you do that. Plus, we talked about that def- defensive infrastructure. Two, why would Portland want a guy who's only got one year left on his contract that, like, the, the, the crown jewel of their Dame piece is not going to be a guy they might lose in a year. So, mm-hmm. I think it has to be Scotty. So some people then might say, well, this doesn't make any sense. They wouldn't trade Scotty for Kevin friggin' Durant a year ago. Now they're going to trade him for Dame. One, a year is a long time in the NBA. And two, no two trade negotiations are the same. So the way I looked at it last year was Scotty Barnes coming off a rookie of the year campaign, you know, a sparkling rookie campaign at the height of his young trade value powers, let's say. And... Kevin Durant still with a lot of the injury concerns in his mid thirties, the way you could look at it last year to me was, and I think the way the front office looked at it for the Raptors wasn't, you know, is Scotty Barnes going to be as good as Kevin Durant? It was are Kevin Durant's age 34 to age 37 seasons going to be worth giving up team control, essentially of Scotty Barnes age 21 to 28 seasons between his rookie scale contract and his extension eligibility before he can ever hit free agency. Fast forward a year later, if they ask themselves that same question, given you know what we know about Scotty a year later, disappointing sophomore campaign, Dame's a couple years younger than KD was, has some injury concerns, but it's not the same lower body stuff KD had. Now, if you ask yourself the question, are Damian Lillard's age 33 to 36 seasons worth giving up Scotty Barnes, the team control over his 20s? I think I'm leaning more yes to that question than I was to the KD question a year ago. As crazy as that sounds. Look, KD is obviously a better player than Damian Lillard. I think that Dame fits the Raptors' needs a little bit better. And I mean, I also think a year later, the shine has come off of the Raptors and Barnes a little bit. And I'm not I'm not like giving up on him after one disappointing sophomore campaign, right? We talk all the time about how development isn't linear. We've seen this happen before. I'm very much not foreclosing on the possibility of, you know, Scotty Barnes' future star. But for the Raptors, what does the future with Scotty Barnes look like? Where is this going? I've said, I just think the roster construction is not really conducive to his development right now. They're like, he's not a point guard. He's not an initiator to me. And I don't think he's ever going to be that. That doesn't mean he can't be a playmaking hub, you know, somebody who's initiating dribble handoff action, who's playmaking in the open floor, you know, like ripping and running and like playing that role. Like all 
he has a ton of passing and playmaking dynamism, but in term like he still needs to be playing with the point guard now and in the long term, in my opinion. So he's he's got none of that in Toronto right now. There's no spacing around him. And I just don't think that is a great situation to pull the best out of him. Now, the Raptors aren't necessarily going to always look like they do right now, but they are also entering a season in which I think the ceiling on them is quite low. And their two best players currently are slated for unrestricted free agency next year. They just saw what happens when you go into an offseason with one of your best players as an unrestricted free agent. And like, as much as you can feel confident about your ability to bring those players back when they're unrestricted, you don't have control over the situation and you don't know what's going to happen. And it only takes one team with, you know, a ton of cap space with a certain amount of desperation, whatever it is like they can go into next year thinking, no, we'll, we'll, we'll be fine. We'll bring OG back. Like we have a number we're comfortable with and we'll bring him back. But like, you don't know. You do not know that. You don't know when another Houston Rockets is going to come along and throw a max offer at OG, one that, you know, either the Raptors aren't willing to trump or whatever they can offer him isn't enough to dissuade OG from leaving for lower state taxes, a bigger offensive role, whatever it is he decides he wants. So it's a precarious situation for them to be in. And I think because I just don't, I'm acknowledging like this could change and it's partly maybe a failure of imagination on my part, but I don't see this incredibly bright long-term future with Scotty Barnes as the centerpiece of the Raptors, you know, three, four, five years down the road. That's a long way away and, uh, and a lot can change. I acknowledge that. I'm just saying, I don't see like this great upside that I would be hesitant necessarily to sacrifice it for what could be a title shot in the present day with Dame surrounded by the defensive infrastructure that you mentioned. Like I think Dame, OG, Siakam, Pirtle, that's like a title contending core for to me. 100% agreed. That's yeah, why I'm, I'm in on that idea, even though it doesn't seem like the Raptors are anywhere yeah. within spitting range of this conversation right yeah. now. Yeah, and I think the question, I know we have to get moving because we want to talk free agency, but I think like the question too is like, it's even if you are still a believer in Barnes, as you know I am based on conversations we've had off air, I the question you have to ask yourself if they were maybe thinking about getting in the mix is, isn't even just like, you know, do we still believe in Scotty Barnes? It's more so... Do we believe we can build a team with Scotty Barnes eventually as good as a team with Damian Lillard, Pascal Siakam, OG, and Pearl? Because that would be very hard to do. The one thing I will say is if they are not prepared to get in the mix for a Dame, if they are not prepared to make one of those win-now type moves, and they may not be, that's fine, then I do think they have to pivot and get the best offer for Pascal figure out what's going on with OG, whether you're extending him. And if not, if you're not extending him or he's, you know, he wants such a big offensive role that's not happening here, then you're going to lose him. Then you have to think of the best offers for OG as well. Because as you mentioned, those guys are both pending unrestricted free agents in 2024 after you just lost Fred Van Vliet for nothing. And I will say this about Pascal. Love Pascal. Um, but I think we are also in agreement that he is very much a secondary star. He's a great secondary star, but he's a secondary star. And that can still mean being an all NBA player, but he's not the best player on a championship team. One thing I wrote uh, in the wake of the Beal trade, and I, I was thinking of Pascal Siakam and the Raptors when I thought of this, 
if you're a team in the middle of a non-competitive window, which the Raptors are right now, if they're not willing to make, say, a trade like a Dame trade, if you're a team in the middle of a non-competitive window, and the only way to retain a veteran secondary star is to pay him like a primary superstar, then I think you have to rip the Band-Aid off and trade them while you can. Because if you're not going to make the type of deal that puts him in his rightful place as the secondary star beside a more primary star and actually build a real contending team, and you've got this guy that's more of a secondary star, he's going to be 30 soon, you're in a non-competitive window, he's got a year left on his contract. If you're not moving that guy, to me, that is a pretty gross mismanagement of assets. And you keep doing that over and over, whether it's a Fred or a Pascal, and you end up, you know, I just talked about Beal, you end up in a very Wizards-esque place. Yeah, okay. So, look, we're we're going to talk more about the Raptors on the other side of this when we pivot to free agency moves that we liked and didn't like, and we can talk about the direction of some of the teams involved most heavily in free agency this time around. We didn't mention Harden, and I guess that speaks to I guess that speaks to the gulf in terms of uh, influence or pedigree or just overall landscape altering talent between Dame and Harden right now, at least as it's perceived, you know, by us and probably by the rest of the league. So Harden, and like going back to what we were talking about at the beginning about how do you control your destination and your situation and create leverage when, you know, in Dame's case, he's got four years left. In Harden's case, only one, like he opts into the last year of his contract with the intent of getting traded, but by opting in rather than opting out and just becoming a free agent who could sign anywhere, he puts his situation in Philadelphia's hands. Now, we know how James Harden likes to create leverage, right? Cash, you want to you want to tell the people out there if they don't know? James Harden is the NBA's ultimate agent of chaos. I'll, I'll add harmless chaos, NBA-related <laughs> chaos, because Kyrie Irving does exist. So I, I want to I specify what I thought about James Harden. He's the NBA's ultimate agent of harmless chaos. James Harden, we can say, without a doubt, is willing to do the thing that we don't think that Dame Lillard is willing to do, which is to just create instability by either sulking or showing up out of shape or not playing hard, whatever it is. Leverage through chaos is the, the term that Cash brilliantly came up with a couple of years back to describe how James Harden has been able to get what he wants. I don't know if he's going to be able to do that this time because I just don't think there's enough of an appetite around the league for his services to like gin up some kind of a, a bidding war where Philly is going to feel like, I mean, I guess maybe if he makes things uncomfortable enough there, they'll just have to move on and take whatever they can get for him. It just doesn't seem like there's anything like I, I've heard people saying that the Clippers would not give up Terrence Mann for James Harden. And I'm like, geez, man, I know the Clippers really value Terrence Mann highly, but if there is any team that ought to be desperate enough, that has a need, clearly a need for the services that James Harden would provide. That has to be it. And they're not willing to give up Terrence Mann, one of like 18 billion wings that they have on the roster in order to get the point guard that they so desperately need. Like if we're not even there, then I just don't know. Like, I don't know how this ends apart from just, I think the most likely scenario right now is like the Sixers hold on to him up until training camp. And either 
he says, fuck it. I'm coming in. I'm going to have a really good season. And then I'm going to be a free agent. I'm going to pick my destination. And teams are going to want to sign me because I'll have proven that I'm still a star. Or he doesn't show up. And then, you know, things snowball from there. But that's, I'm starting to feel like that's the most likely outcome is he doesn't get traded anywhere. And if he doesn't start the season in Philly, then he at least sort of starts training camp in Philly and we just kind of see what happens and how much chaos he can truly create. Well, the thing with James Harden at this stage of his career, and I realize this sounds crazy because we're talking about a guy who basically just averaged 21 points and 11 assists, led the league in assists. So I fully understand uh, that this statement I'm about to make doesn't add up when you look at his stats. But the problem with trying to create that same leverage through chaos at this stage of James Harden's career is that the difference or the gulf between James Harden playing his best basketball and James Harden coming in out of shape, whatever, the gulf between those things is not as big as it used to be. Like, we're not talking about, MV- oh, like, if he shows up, you're getting MVP level James Harden, and if he doesn't, you're getting the NBA's ultimate like agent of chaos. You're getting a very diminished version of James Harden at this stage of his career. So the difference between those two things, not what it once was. I mean, I'll throw a real wrench into this and ask you this. If this does go haywire, like if they don't find a trade partner, if, as you mentioned, like he either doesn't show up to camp or comes in clearly disgruntled, not playing hard, maybe out of shape, whatever. I mean, that puts the Sixers in a real tough spot. If it goes that way for James Harden and the Sixers, and I realize this, we, we, we can't actually have this conversation today because we just don't have the time, but if it goes that way for the Sixers, Joel Embiid's got to be the next disgruntled star in the NBA. Like, really? I'm, like, I'm not even doing that to just drum up angering Trill wherever he is listening to this right now in Philly or Sixers fans listening to this. I'm being honest. Like, if that were to happen, I feel like things really go off the rails in Philly. I don't think it will. Yeah, but, yeah, but you don't like. Do, do you not I, just I sort think, of see I it heading it, that way anyway? Like, oh, in general, that with Embiid eventually being disgruntled, yes. I'm saying I don't think it'll happen like that with Harden. Look, if he's still on the team come October with one year left on his deal at this stage of his career, when a he is still trying to win his first ring, and b obviously wants to maximize his free agency next summer, I can't see him completely sabotaging all that. Even if you, in the most negative, pessimistic sense, cynical sense, don't think James Harden cares about how the Sixers do fine. Even for himself, then. If this is the guy who wants to maximize his last big payday next summer, I can't see him showing up out of shape and sabotaging himself because he's got to be smart enough and aware enough to know that at this stage of his career, he can't afford to do that and still rely on teams being like, well, it's James Harden. We'll just max him out anyway. Like He does actually have to earn something close to max money with his play this year. I wrote a whole story about this after the Sixers got eliminated where I just feel like him and the Sixers still need each other because Philly doesn't really have any way to replace him, at least not right now. You know, they could let him go, have this sort of bridge year where they're not a real contender, but they can, you know, be something like a 45 to even 50 win team still with like Embiid and Maxi and like, that's still a decent team. I mean, Embiid, frick, he's, a, he's the reigning MVP, right? We know how good of a regular season player he is. Like, they could still be a top four seed in the East with that roster. But they would be biding their time 
until the Tobias Harris contract comes off their books. All this money comes off their books. This is why we're not seeing them extend Tyrese Maxey right now because they want a clean cap sheet next summer. And they can just have Maxey's very low cap hold on their books. I don't even know what it comes in at. Something like eight, ten million million, $10 something like that, as opposed to like the $30 million that would be on their books if they signed to a max extension right now. They can let him become an RFA. They can max him out then. They want to have as much flexibility and cap room as they possibly can next summer. But that would require them to, you know, Embiid has three years left on his contract. They're going to spend, you know, one of those years basically not being in the title conversation. Maybe they can sell that to him and he'll understand. Maybe they can't. But I mean, I guess if you look at it that way, the best case scenario for them is Harden comes back, plays the way that he did last season. They're still a contender this year. And then they sort of clear the books after that. But as we just said, free agency isn't really that much of a thing anymore. And like looking at the 2024 free agent class, it's like, I don't know, Jalen Brown and, and Siakam basically, but those two guys could easily just sign extensions. And then what are you really clearing the decks for? So that might be their best possible path here, but I don't know that it's going to lead anywhere fruitful, even if they are able to mend fences with Harden and bring him back, which is obviously very much in doubt right now. I, I love on uh, on Twitter, I saw people saying, oh, maybe things are okay now with him and Sixers because he was like parting somewhere with Embiid and I think Tobias Harris or maybe Maxi, I can't remember who, but it, with Embiid for sure. And I was just like, I, are, are people that out to lunch that they think like James Harden still being friends with Joel Embiid or parting with Joel Embiid somewhere means that he's okay with however this ends with the six or like doesn't still want to trade or doesn't still want certain things in free agency. Like, come on, people. Wake up, sheeple. Uh, all right. Let's go to break. We'll come back and we'll talk about some free agency moves we liked and some we didn't like. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Cash, we burned probably too much time talking about Dame Lillard and James Harden. That was not my intention, but as a I result... I that was a scintillating 35 minutes. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, we're inevitably going to get carried away no matter what we're talking about, but obviously those two players have a chance to, you know, to varying extents alter the league's competitive landscape next year. So I guess it stands to reason that we would get carried away talking about them and those very interesting situations. But I I do want to talk a little bit about free agency, even though it's, a little bit underwhelming compared to past years and compared to the trade market that might take shape over the next couple of months. Still some interesting moves and deals that went down. So why don't we talk about some of those deals that we liked and some that we didn't. And when 
we do this exercise or have done it in the past, it's like very slanted toward the teams, right? Like if there's a move that we liked, it's because the team got a great team-friendly deal and that might not have been beneficial for the player involved. So I want to start us off here by saying, but I'll throw out one that I like and don't like for basically the same reason, which is that from the Lakers perspective, signing Austin Reeves for four years and $56 million is a home run. But for Austin Reeves, I think it kind of sucks because I think if it, like if he'd been a, a UFA, he would have gotten a much bigger offer than this. And even as an arenas restricted RFA could have gotten an offer that ran up to like four years and a hundred million, basically. I still think the Lakers would have matched that might've made them a bit uncomfortable, but they would have matched it. But because of the way that restricted free agency works, and we've talked about this on this show before, I think it's, it's very team friendly, obviously. And you know, not particularly beneficial for players. No team was willing to put that offer on the table because I guess they had a sense that the Lakers were going to match. They didn't want their cap space to be tied up. That's even more pertinent now when these deals just happen, bang, 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 in the first 48 hours of free agency. It didn't always used to be like this, right? Uh, They used to be a little bit more spread out than they are now. But at this stage, it's like, yeah, you can't afford to have that dangling out there. Even though they've shrunk the window, I think it's only 24 hours now to match, right? I th- uh, it's tw- I think it depends on when the offer sheet came in. I think if it's after the moratorium, if they only have 24 hours to match. Or it's something like um, you have until the end of the day, the next day. So depending uh-huh. on when it, the offer sheet is given, it could end up being like 36 hours or whatever. But I think if it's signed before the moratorium, I think they have... For 24 hours after the moratorium ends. I think it's something like that. Anyway, so look, that's great news for the Lakers. I think this is going to wind up looking like one of the best non-rookie scale contracts in the league. I, I think Reeves is a terrific player. He was the third best player on the Lakers last year. He was simply one of the most efficient scorers in all of basketball. 69% true shooting. Basically, the only players that were better than that last year were like, low usage screen and dive centers and Nikola Jokic. Like he's a legit three level scorer. He's a great passer. He can defend at the point of attack. Getting him on that deal is just phenomenal news for the Lakers. But, you know, I also like to see players get paid what they're worth. And I was hoping that a team with cap space would have put that sort of arenas max offer in front of Reeves and you know, force the Lakers, I guess, to to match that or to let him go. Yeah, I'm somewhat surprised and honestly disappointed that the Spurs weren't that team to do that. I really mm. thought they were going to. And one, I think it would have been incredible for them if if there was even a remote possibility the Lakers wouldn't match at the absolute poison pill max. I think the Spurs landing him would have been incredible. I think he could have been part of obviously what's now a very exciting rebuild with Wembenyama at the center of it. And the reason I'm disappointed too is because it's not like we can look back now in free agency and be like, well, if they had done that and like, you know, had that cap space used up for a couple of days, then they wouldn't have been able to what they re-signed Trey Jones, which is a nice piece of business. But well, they, they needed to be able to absorb Chetty Osman though, Cash. Oh yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, it's not like they needed that cap space to do something else. They very much could have afforded to still re-sign Trey Jones to put that offer sheet out there for Austin Reeves and see what happens. And if the Lakers end up matching it, okay, 
yeah, that sucks. But guess what? Now we got a player paid, which if we're talking about the whole stuff with like, you know, you want to make good with agents and make friends with players, that would have looked good. Second of all, you would have forced the Lakers to use more of their cap space and their room going forward. And like all those little things matter in competition, right? It's not just what's happening on the court. It's how you are affecting rivals off the court. And I think that would have been a very prudent move for the Spurs where it's like, best case, we end up with a guy we really want and believe in as part of our rebuild. Worst case, we force a West rival to spend 30 to 40 million more than they otherwise will. And yeah. so I was really disappointed in the Spurs, especially not getting in the mix for Reeves. But I say that and I don't know. I mean, I don't possibly know what they could, you know, see or know that we don't when it comes to Reeves. But again, I say that in maybe the internal conversations with the Spurs were that they don't think he's worth that. And so it would have actually been a risk because they don't think his play would end up meriting that kind of money. Maybe, but I, I, I don't think there's anything to suggest that it wouldn't like that incredible regular season play that we saw very much translated to the playoffs. And, you know, he, he had been a bench guy. He became a starter in the playoffs and like pretty much sustained his efficiency was like the Lakers lead initiator in crunch time of like several playoff games proved that he could do it as a three point shooter, as a driver, got to the free throw line a ton, like, I, I just don't see a ton of weaknesses in his game. And I know, you know, for a guy who's only been in the league two years, he's on, on the older side. I think he's 25. But, like, who cares? You're signing him for the next four years. Like, that's the prime of his career. So yeah. I, I just think it would have been a worthwhile swing. And to your point, like, about the Lakers' cap space, they, they wouldn't have even been using cap space to bring him back. Like, they right. wound up operating as an over-the-cap team anyway. Yeah. So the way that that would have worked is like if there had been that max offer put in front of him, like the structure of it because of the arenas provision would have been MLE in year one, a, I don't know what the raise is allowed to go up to in year two, but it's like an incremental raise in year two and then crazy backloaded where it can go up to like the 25% max in years three and four. So it's like they would have still gotten him for cheap for the next two years, but then in year three and four of that contract, he would have been on basically a max deal. Yeah, I think um, the Spurs should have done it. I think, I think they should have too, but uh, their loss, I guess, is the Lakers' gain, and uh, they get, like I said, I think one of uh, one of the best contracts, one of the best, one of the most team-friendly contracts in the league at four years, $56 million for Austin Reeves. They also get Gabe Vincent for a large chunk of the MLE three years, $33 million. I think that's great value for them. You know, they lose Dennis Schroeder and they get Vincent. I like that trade-off. Like, I think it's maybe a slight downgrade defensively, but offensively, I think Vincent is much more of a threat to shoot off of the dribble. I think in terms of him being like an inverted pick and roll partner for LeBron, that's just going to be that much more deadly because, I think he's a better screener than Schroeder and again, more of a threat to flare out and hit threes. His three point shooting has been super streaky, but I still think, you know, bringing that threat compared to what Schroeder was bringing, I like that trade off for them. So, and he proved that his defense, like despite him being obviously undersized, like his defense held up deep into the postseason. So uh, I think that's a nice add for them. Like not even the full mid-level exception, and then I, I just think the Lakers had 
you know, probably the best free agency period of any team. Like Torian Prince at the biannual exception is a really nice ad, even though he's always been, you know, a better defender in theory than in reality. He shot the ball really, really well last season. Um, what else did the Lakers do? They signed, they signed Rui. Jackson Hayes. <laughs> yeah, signed Jackson Hayes, re-signed Rui. Oh, and, and D'Lo at, at two oh, yeah. years, 37. Like, I think that's, you know, fair AAV and on a short-term deal. Yep. If they had just brought in Vincent and not brought back Russell, like that would have been a downgrade. But they keep that pull-up threat. Like he is, you know, he, he's not a high-efficiency shot creator. Like the types of shots that he creates are not, certainly not creating a ton of layups for himself. Uh, he's a he's a pretty strong playmaker, but like I think his limitations, obviously defensively and even offensively, were exposed as that playoff run went along. But as a regular season floor raiser, hundred percent. Look, the team that just made the West Finals, the team that had the best or second best record in the West post deadline with the new look roster, team with LeBron James and Anthony Davis on it, got better. Full stop at the onset of free agency, and. Just like you compare it to a year ago or to when last season started, they are so much better and so much deeper than they were then. And now they can actually go into the season with that mindset that we talked about, you know, in the early uh, stages of the LeBron AD era or even post deadline last season, where I was like, now they can look at it like, okay, we've put a squad together where we're, no, we're not the best team on paper, but. We're good enough where if LeBron James and Anthony Davis are healthy, we've got a shot. And, you know, as I said so many times last year, the pity to me was that for like a year and a half, despite having LeBron James and Anthony Davis on the roster, the Lakers had a team where even when those guys were healthy, that team was nowhere near good enough. They are back to now being the kind of team where it's like, if those two guys are healthy, they have at worst a puncher's chance in any matchup, in any playoff series. And if you have, even at this stage of LeBron's career with him, with AD, that's at the very least all you can ask for. And I think they've put themselves in a position where that's the case again with a player like Reeves who's getting better um, with some good secondary playmaking and creation around them. We saw, you know, the defensive upside of this roster now. So I think, especially when you compare it to a year ago, Lakers fans should feel really good about this team now. Yeah, I mean, and I don't think signing Jackson Hayes for the minimum is a bad thing at all. Like, certainly, you know, as far as low-risk, low-cost flyers go, that's a perfectly fine one to take. Like, super bouncy dude still who who can be a great pick-and-roll finisher. Still has a lot of kinks to iron out defensively, but the physical tools are there. Like, I would take that swing 10 times out of 10. That still sort of being their backup center or like their AD insurance in the event. I mean, I don't even think in the event, like when he inevitably gets injured and misses time this year, they need better, better center depth and insurance than just that. Um, That's kind of the one area where I would look at and think that's still a clear weakness and something they would need to address, but they'll have time to do that. I suppose. Uh, Should we go in the other direction? And uh, I was going to, yeah, I'll give you one that uh, I was going to say, because you, um, you brought out, you brought up Reeves who, you know, even though he got the max the Lakers could give him without having to match an offer sheet in the end, it's a very team friendly deal. So now I want to talk about a guy who got uh, a deal I loved for both parties because the player 
you know, got overpaid, if you uh, if you will. But the team was willing to do it because it made sense for both parties. I love the fact that the Pacers signed Bruce Brown to a two-year, $45 million contract, but the second year is a $23 million team option. So essentially, it's one year with a guaranteed $22 million. But I love it for both sides because... Brown, for as good as he is, for as great a role player as he is, obviously is not a $22 million a year player. But the Pacers are this kind of ascendant young team that had a ton of cap space and, quite frankly, were not going to use it on players better than Bruce Brown anyway. They were not, they're were they not a free agent destination. They weren't ready to make that kind of move yet anyway. So they had all this cap space. It's a short-term deal. It's not like it's eating up their cap space for a long time. Heck. Maybe if they're ready to make a different kind of move or they need the cap space, they can just decline that team option on Brown. If not, they have them for next year under contract. So I just love that. Like, I love when a team operates like this where it's like, yeah, we're, we're going to sign a player to a contract that they're technically not worth in terms of their on-court impact, but that's actually not going to negatively impact us because all we're looking at it is we're adding a player that makes us better without sacrificing long-term cap flexibility. And it makes sense with what we're doing right now and where we're going. So I like it from the team perspective. I like how the Pacers went about this. Love it for Bruce Brown, who came into this free agency having made $15.1 million over his five or six-year career, gets minimum 22 up to 45 over the next couple of years. And then also there's the fact that he's just a good player who defends, who I think you mentioned like, showed some unexpected on-ball chops during the playoffs and in the finals, especially a guy who shot 37% from three combined over the last couple seasons. He's a really nice addition for a good rising Pacers team um, who is led by a guy that they just gave a max extension to in Tyrese Halliburton that is a very smart playmaker and floor general who I think We'll see the things that Bruce Brown does and reward him for it and utilize them properly. So I just, I love this all around for the Pacers and Bruce Brown. And I think it's kind of a nice palate cleanser after talking about how players like Austin Reeves get a little screwed. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think it's a perfectly equitable deal that makes sense for both sides. And I love the fit. Uh, I think he addresses a lot of the Pacers' needs, maybe not all of them in terms of like wing defense, because he's not, he's, he's a better defender of guards than he is of wings. He can defend up for sure, but he's on the smaller side if you're talking about sort of defending the like power playmaking wings of the world. But I, I yeah, I love that. And I think, you know, they also clearly had this hole at the four which they sort of addressed, you know, they drafted Jairus Walker and then they also used their cap space to absorb Obi Toppin. I, you know, I think we both would have loved to have seen John Collins end up there. Like, I think if there was an ideal landing spot for John Collins, that would have been it. I actually don't know. I would have to go back and look at whether that would have eaten too much into their cap space for them to have made the Bruce Brown signing. Maybe that is the reason they opted not to do it. Um, and and Toppin will be interesting there. Like he's, you know, still very raw in my opinion, and like he's definitely shown flashes with the Knicks, especially in terms of like as a transition player. I think the Pacers are a team that could play super up tempo next year, and he would make a lot of sense in that context. But I think he's made you know incremental strides defensively to the point that I think he's approaching basically being an average defender. Well. 
if his three-point shot comes back around, and then he's a guy who can potentially space for you while also being a rim runner and a guy who's going to get out on the break, then that could be a, a super quality four man who fits really nicely into, you know, the, they have a, a lot of guard depth and they have miles Turner entrenched now at center. Like I think he would slide in there really nicely if everything can kind of come together for him in terms of like using their cap space, just to absorb him in a deal where they didn't have to send anything out. Like I like it. I like what the Pacers did all around. And I agree in terms of the Bruce Brown deal looking great for both sides. I just love where they're at because they're in that kind of that stage where it's like, if they're healthy and things break right, they can be really good this year. Mm -hmm. But they're still, I think, self-aware enough to know we're also still in that stage where like we should be taking flyers on guys like Obi Toppin and seeing you know, throwing some stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks. Because we can be good, but we're not quite there yet. So we're still willing to take those chances. I, I just really love where they are. They have Halliburton and, and Turner under long-term team control now and a bunch of guys on rookie-scale contracts. It's just a really good spot Indiana's in. Yeah. Um, okay, can we pivot to talk about a couple other teams that had cap space that we maybe didn't like so much the, the way that they went about using it? Please. Okay, so I'll start with Sacramento because there were all these interesting, exciting possibilities that I and I think a lot of other people saw when they made that draft night deal to get off of Rashawn Holmes' contract, cost them their first round pick, but it allowed them to potentially open up as much as $35 million in space. They almost immediately ate like halfway into that space by extending Harrison Barnes three years, 54 million, not a, an unfair deal, like probably around market value for Harrison Barnes. But I just, the problem with Harrison Barnes in Sacramento as the power forward there, it's just not good enough defensively when you are trying to insulate DeMontis Sabonis as your five, when you're playing a scheme where you want Sabonis up at the level as often as possible and needs secondary rim protection behind him. I just don't think Harrison Barnes provides that. And I don't know. I mean, maybe they just didn't have better options. Maybe they did their due diligence and recognized that. Maybe they recognized that Jeremy Grant was going to be out of reach. And, you know, it just, it just didn't make sense to go in a different direction. But, like, I mean, I look at the Bruce Brown thing. That could have been the Kings, right? Like, I think he would have been an amazing fit there. And they need wing defense as badly as any team. You know, uh, even... I guess if Dylan Brooks was going to get $20 million a year from Houston, then it wouldn't have been a good idea for the Kings to pursue him. But I thought Brooks would have been a really good fit in Sacramento as well. Mm. And I don't know. I, I never thought the Draymond thing really made sense. I didn't understand that fit or how that would have worked at all. So I'm not you know, too upset about them not getting Draymond necessarily. But I just thought in terms of like the potential avenues that were there, them ultimately using that space, they extended Barnes, renegotiated and extended with Sabonis, brought back Trey Lyles, and then brought Sasha Vizenkov, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, uh, across from overseas, who's, I mean, he just... Won Euro League MVP, right? So he won Euro League MVP, uh, Europe, all Europe Player of the Year, yeah. Greek League MVP, won the Greek Championship, took Olympiacos to the Euro League final. 
but was it, the was the leading scorer. Shot sixty six percent from two point range. Did they not have his bird rights already? Though that's that's what I'm wondering because I I wonder if that's one like they could have signed him even if they had used their space is sort of what I'm saying. Uh, I'm not sure. He was drafted by Brooklyn at the end of the second, 57th overall in 2017. Now, I'm not sure, did Sacramento at some point trade for his rights? They did. They definitely did. So I think they, yeah, I I don't think that, like, you know, using their cap space to to sign somebody that would have filled, you know, a clear area of need for them would not have precluded them bringing him over, I don't think. So, yeah, I just thought ultimately that, amounted to a pretty underwhelming signing period for them after it seemed like it just seemed to me like there was a lot of purpose and intention behind making that draft night trade right like and and giving themselves the opportunity to open up all that space it just i don't know man it, it wound up feeling underwhelming to me what about you uh completely agreed yeah i mean i'm really interested to see vizankov in the nba just to see how much of obviously you know he's not gonna be the best player in the league so but i am Curious to see how much of the, especially shooting, translates. Because the shooting numbers are outrageous. Like, they make no sense. Um, you're, in Europe, the three-point line, at least above the break, I think, is like a couple closer. feet closer. But so. like I said, he shot 66% from two-point range. Like, mm-hmm. um, But other than that, yeah, I'm very underwhelmed because like you and like everyone, I was fascinated and excited about the possibilities once they made that move on draft. I'm like, all right. Team that won, what, 48 games last year, finally got to the playoffs, had a great seven-game series with, you know, at the time, the defending champs. Like, eh, it's things, everything's going in the right direction here. Maybe make a bit, swing a big deal with this new cap space. Like, they could be a legit title threat this year. And then it's like, nah, nah they're still just a team to me because they didn't really, <laughs> like, so, I don't know. Yeah, underwhelming. Okay, I will cede the mic to you, and we can talk about another cap space team. And okay, I don't know. I mean, I guess well, I, I'm curious to hear where you landed on the Houston Rockets signings in totality. I think this team has disaster potential written all over it. Disaster I, in what sense? Chemistry wise, guys hating each other, team falling apart by Christmas. Listen. I completely understand why they wanted to add Fred Van Vliet. This team, more than any other team in the league, needed an adult in the room, needed a professional who's been there, who's won on some level, in Fred Van Vliet's case, won on the ultimate level, who can show and tell guys how it's done. I'm sure Ime Udoka, you know, who's new head coach there, probably loves the signing as well because it... You know, I'm sure he's looking at Fred Van Vliet as being an extension of his voice as well with some of the young guys. And I get all that. And yes, they overpaid in terms of what Fred Van Vliet's on-court impact is. He is not a $42 plus million a year player in terms of on-court impact. Even if you still think he has all-star potential or is a borderline all-star, that's a very good player. Top 30 player in the NBA, that's not a $42 million player. So in that sense, they overpaid him. But it is a short deal. I think some people have reported the third year as a team option. Did we ever get clarification on that is that i believe the third year is a team option yeah so so that's the thing like really even if you look at it as a two-year deal it's short enough that even if the they're overpaying for the on-court impact it's fine because it's a short deal it's not hamstringing them they probably weren't doing anything better with that cap space anyway not dissimilar to what we talked about with bruce brown and the pacers except a much better player however 
I also think, I think there's going to be some tension there in the sense that like this team has a lot of guys that need the ball, that want the ball. They have, quite frankly, strictly talking on a basketball level, based on the way they've played, some low IQ <laughs> offensive guys, okay? And the positive is you can look at it as like, well, Fred Van Leet's going to help them. He is now, you know, he's one of the smarter players in the league, very much a floor general type. He can come in there and help them with that. The flip side of that is like, like I don't know how well it's going to be received by some of these young guys when Fred Van Vliet comes in here and is trying to be the new leader and the voice of a team. Like he, even though he's won a title, he doesn't have that same championship equity and built up equity in Houston that he obviously did in Toronto. So for him to now come in there and start preaching to Jalen Green or even Kevin Porter Jr., who I'm not even a fan of, but I'm sure has his own ego and whatever. When Fred Van Vliet's coming in there and preaching that while shooting sub 40% from the field, I don't know how well that's going to go over. And then you throw the Molotov cocktail of Dylan Brooks in there. And it's like, again, basketball-wise, I get it. They need a defensive guy. They need a competitor like that. But they're also adding, if you're talking about shot selection and like on the offensive end, one of the lower IQ or at least lower discipline guys in the league to that mix where I definitely don't think they need that. So I'm in the middle because I can see for sure the reasons why they targeted guys like Fred and Brooks, the reasons why maybe they were okay overpaying them to bring them in because they think they are going to help them kind of reset the culture and bring adults in the room and all that. But I also see the other side of it where I think there is some disaster potential there. And I think they might look back in just a few months into the season and think, you know, we didn't actually address the things we wanted to address because we're as much of a mess as we were last year when it comes to like somewhat unorganized offense and like looking like five guys who don't want to play together on the court and we paid a lot of money to not get a lot better while still being just as dysfunctional. I think that is a very real possibility with this mix of characters. Well, I think they are going to get a lot better and like just look at the defensive side, right? Last three seasons, the Rockets finished 27th, 30th, and 29th in defensive efficiency. They bring in Van Vliet, who I know slipped as an on-ball defender last year. No doubt about it. But remains, to me, one of the best guard help defenders yep. in basketball. He's been top five in both steals and deflections per game in each of the last four years. He's going to really help them on that side of the ball, as is Dylan Brooks. I mean, if you want on-ball defense and point-of-attack stopping, you can't get much better than Dylan Brooks. So even if you're not necessarily getting that from Van Vliet, you're getting it from Brooks. You bring in Eamon Thompson, who is maybe not going to be like a defensive stud from day one, but obviously has huge defensive potential. Tari Eason obviously showed massive defensive potential last season, like, I think they're going to be much improved on that side of the ball. And that alone could add like 10 wins to their regular season total. Offensively, I really like the Fred fit. As a guy who can handle the ball and give their offense a bit of organization and structure, which it has lacked. It's been one of the most dysfunctional offenses in the league the last three years. He can do that. But he also doesn't have to step on anybody's toes. And for a team that is trying to develop all of these other creators whether it's Thompson or Jalen Green or Kevin Porter Jr., 
Van Vliet is still a really good off-ball player, not only as somebody who has, you know, spot-up gravity and can space the floor, but as a really good screener who has a ton of experience playing inverted pick-and-roll and is going to be able to screen for any of those bigger creators at any time. I think it's a really good fit on court. As far as the off-court stuff and the potential friction on the horizon, I think that's a really good point. And like Fred obviously took the bag that was in front of him, you know, by far the highest AAV offer that was on the table. Whether he is prepared for the level of frustration that may come along with moving into this rebuilding environment is unclear to me. And like, I don't know if you read the Michael Grange piece that dropped today about the Raptors last season, but there was a nugget in there. And not that this is like a huge surprise to either of us or anybody who closely followed the Raptors last season, but there was a note in there about how the veterans on last year's Raptors team, specifically Van Vliet and Pascal Siakam, were deeply frustrated with the younger players on the roster. And as Grange writes, Van Vliet let them know about it, something the younger set didn't appreciate at all. And look, Scotty Barnes had a tough year last year. There's no doubt about it. But if you think that it's going to be any less frustrating dealing with the lumps that guys like Jalen Green and Kevin Porter Jr. and Eamon Thompson are going to take this coming season, like, I I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I he's going to have to radically adjust his expectations or there are going to be some serious clashes with that team. So... I think that's a fair point to make. I still like the fit there, and I understand. I think that's a justifiable overpay, especially with the team option on year three. Yeah, as a two-year floor-raising stopgap, I really like it. But you know, the the potential cultural clash is an important consideration. And then with Brooks, like again, I understand the idea behind it: professionalize the defense, get in this just like hardworking, gritty dude to set a good example on the defensive end. But I think that is, you know, on a team with a lot of mouths to feed, guys who are going to command on-ball touches, you know, Shangun as a as a post-playmaking hub, and like Eamon Thompson as an oversized shot creator, and Van Vliet, and like the way that he likes to kind of probe and maybe dribble the air out of the ball sometimes, right? And Jalen Green and his proclivities. Like, that's a lot of mouths to feed. And so dropping a guy like Dylan Brooks into the mix, like, you know, a guy who tends to call his own number on offense more than he ought to. That's a, a, a pretty dangerous component, I guess, to throw into that mix, especially when you're talking about four fully guaranteed years at 20 million per. I'm like probably the biggest Dylan Brooks defender there is at this point, And I still thought that was kind of a crazy overpay. So I guess I wound up feeling like, yes, they made their team better, but I feel like they got out over their skis a little bit in terms of they had all this cap space and they could have been more judicious and patient in how they used it. You know, like they didn't have to use all of it right now. They could have gone into the season as one of these teams with cap space with, you know, as you approach the trade deadline and maybe a team is like desperate and needs to get off a contract, maybe you pull in a first round pick for absorbing it, right? Like, they're still at that stage in their development cycle where that's the kind of stuff they should have been thinking about doing rather than just, we have all this space, let's push all our chips in now, we're hitting the throttle and we're like, I just don't know if 
they were the quite Let's win 30 they... games next year. <laughs> yeah. I think they could win like 35 to 40 next year. I would, that wouldn't shock me. That would shock me. Yeah. 35 and 47 would shock me for this team. I pegged them in like the high 20s, maybe 30, low 30s. Mm-hmm. I'll say this. if There should be a prop out there where you can bet on the first team to have a players-only meeting after <laughs> like dropping a winnable game and falling to like 4 and 17 or something. Mm-hmm. It's going to be the Rockets. Uh, can I talk about some short-term deals that I did really like? Please do. Not that I dislike the the Van Vliet deal. I actually, I, again, as a basketball fit, I really like it. But for the Bucks to be able to bring back both Middleton and Lopez on three and two year deals, respectively, whatever you think of, like the, whether they are worthy of the annual value on those deals, whatever you know your your stance on what it means for the Bucks to be going up above the second apron and the limitations that might come along with that. They just needed to keep that core together for, you know, they, they wound up doing it for the right amount of time. Brooke Lopez is 35. So, I, you know, going beyond two years would have been dicey. But for two years, I mean, that's just perfect, right? 24 yeah, no, million I, a year. Like, with you. I, yeah, like I, I just, the prospect of losing him, they had no way to replace him. And I'm not even just talking about the fact that they had no, you know, cap maneuverability to replace him, but like, there's basically nobody in the league who does what Brooke Lopez does as both a rim protector and a floor spacer and a guy, by the way, who can get you a bucket in the post, right? That's something he really tapped back into last season and had the most efficient scoring season of his career, 63% true shooting, finished second in defensive player of the year voting, makes that entire defensive system work. Uh, just losing him would have been completely disastrous and basically would have closed their championship window as far as I'm concerned. But keeping him for two years, that window is still open. And, you know, maybe two years from now when his contract comes off the books, the Bucks will have a better idea of how to fill that void. But, you know, for now, they can kind of run it back. And despite the disappointing playoff exit last year, they're still running back the team that finished with the best record in the NBA during the regular season. And, and the Middleton one, I mean, again, three years, like you line up his free agency with Giannis's essentially. You just do everything you can to maximize this three-year window that you have with Giannis still under contract. That's what they had to do and they got it done. So I think that's a a huge win for them. Yeah, they're very creaky, but we knew that coming in and this is what they had to do. It's, It's really all they could do if they wanted to keep this championship window open. So it is what it is. Like, They've committed to this team, which is completely understandable and justifiable, but they are creaky, which is something you talked about and wrote about last year. Yeah, going into the playoffs, that was the the thing I was concerned about that I thought could maybe be their undoing, and I think we did see that. In spite of all, you know, there were other extenuating circumstances that led to them losing to the Heat in five games, but I do think that their age and lack of athleticism was exposed, so... Yeah, that's that's still going to be a limiting factor for them. But hey, honestly, even though I think he's a regular season player, they needed more shooting and, and signing Malik Beasley for the minimum. Yeah. Also a really nice piece of business. So I still count this free agency period as a win for the Bucks. Um any other sort of like smaller under the radar type deals that you liked or didn't like? I mean, if we're talking smaller deals I didn't like, the Reggie Jackson 
uh, re-signing oh. Denver. We, I mean, yeah. we were both what the fuck in that uh, immediately after it happened because, like, seriously, what the f were the Nuggets thinking? That I, I don't remember the last time I had such a negatively visceral reaction to uh, to a taxpayer MLE signing. Exactly, just such a yeah. small signing because it was like, yo, Reggie Jackson is at the point of his career, like DeAndre Jordan, who was re-signed by the Nuggets on a one-year veterans minimum contract. Reggie Jackson's at the point of his career where it's like completely justifiable that, you know, um, they would want to have him back because of his locker room presence. Because of the, look, you need to get, throw some spot minutes at him as a uh, point guard during the regular season because of injuries. He can do that. He's a good pro, good vet, whatever. He's at that stage of his career. You sign those guys to veterans minimum contracts. I'm quite certain that no other team out there was chomping at the bit to sign Reggie Jackson for anything more than the veterans minimum. Why the Nuggets had to give him two years and what was it? Two years, nine point something, whatever the... With the, a player option in year two. Yeah, like he's definitely not a four to five million dollar player with a player option player at this point of his career. So I don't know. It was really strange to me. To the point where, like, I was genuinely thinking the only way this makes sense is that for whatever reason, when they first got Reggie, like, I don't know, was there some sort of under the table agreement here where that for some reason he he did something behind the scenes where, like, they just appreciate him so much in Denver where they're like, hey, man, like, we'll take care of you in free agency. Like, it's all good. Like, I, I have no clue. I, I Nothing else makes sense to me. I, I realize that sounds probably very far-fetched, but, like, literally nothing else makes sense. He was awful for them after he came over at the deadline. He was. And to the point that he didn't play at all no, in the playoffs. Because he can't. So, he shouldn't. Like, I just don't... He doesn't fit in their offensive system to me at all. Like, I, I kind of think he stuck out like a sore thumb in that offensive system because he's like one of the few or only guys who doesn't move the ball quickly, make snap decisions, like cut with a lot of purpose... And I don't know, man, I just, I, I get, you know, Bruce Brown left, so they needed a backup point guard, but like, dude, Shake Milton signed basically the exact same deal to go to Minnesota. Yeah. Shake and, Milton, who, say what you will, but is at least capable of having, remember that like 10 day stretch he had? Dude, Shake Milton's good. No, I know. I know. But like, yeah, I don't know, man. Anyway, yeah, like, I, I mean, that's, we can segue that because honestly, Shake Milton signing for two years, 10 million with Minnesota if we're talking under the radar moves, one of my favorites of the offseason. Like, that is a guy who, first of all, in, in terms of like backup guard play, I really feel like the Wolves needed a boost in that department. They bring back Nikhil, who was pretty good after coming over at the deadline last year for them. I like him as a sort of pesky point of attack defender, bit of a chaos agent on offense. Don't always love his decision making on that end of the floor, but fine. Uh, but then getting Milton, man, a guy who can, he can really shoot and he can also handle the ball, right? He's a good driver. Like he can play on or off the ball. So if they need somebody to like run the second unit offense, that can be shake Milton. But if they need a guy to like play off of their stars in transitional groups, that can be him too. Like he can shoot, he can attack off of the catch. He does a really good job of getting to the rim, man, for two years, 10, like that's a very nice piece of business for Minnesota. So that was one of my favorite sort of smaller signings. And uh, yeah, I agree. Like that's 
the Reggie Jackson deal for me was like the complete inverse of that, where I just didn't <laughs> see the thinking behind it at all. And I'm like, dude, if you could have had this guy for the same price, basically, I'm shocked that this is the the direction that you decided to go in. I demand a tampering investigation. Uh, another WTF deal. And it, it, I didn't hate it the way I did for Reggie Jackson because this guy still has utility in the NBA and, and does things that are does things at a very elite level. And that's the Joe Ingles deal in Orlando. Look, Joe Ingles working his way back from that torn ACL this year in Milwaukee proved at the very least he can still shoot and move the ball in a very intelligent way. He shot 40.9% from deep. He's a career 40.8% three-point shooter. So... For the most part, Orlando, who could desperately use some shooting, could use, again, an adult in the room, some vets around that young team, playmaking forward, all good. I I get why a team like Orlando might see a Joe Ingles and be like, yeah, we'd like to have that guy in our room. They overpaid to do it, two years, $22 million. But again, if you're looking at it as like they had cap space, weren't going to do anything else with that. From their perspective, I can at least see why they might think, eh, short-term overpay for Joe Ingles to get him in here and help our culture completely understand it. Other than, I guess, money talks, I don't really get it from Joe Ingles' point of view. A 36-year-old still seeking his first championship, who, like I said, between his shooting and playmaking, definitely, I think, has a role on a contender still. Even if you don't think it's like a large role, maybe it gets slightly diminished in the playoffs, whatever. He still has a role on a contender somewhere. So the fact that he ended up choosing Orlando again I don't want to knock him for it because he did get 22 million dollars but I thought that was surprising at the very least I'm certainly not going to knock Joe Ingles for it (laughs) and I guess the magic his shooting will help like they they need somebody to space the floor so sure uh but yeah that's that was that was one that had me scratching my head for sure uh I I didn't like the Dennis Schroeder signing for the Raptors either you know we eventually had to circle back around to them, but they were sort of at the center of this free agency period for a, a number of different reasons. And I think they're going to be at the center of transaction season for similar reasons. It's just that like they haven't really picked a direction yet. And, you know, whether it is Siakam or OG or even Scotty Barnes, like I think they're going to have something to say about the trade market. But I, I don't have any issue with them not matching or trumping that Rockets offer for Van Vliet. I don't think they should have done that. That's not the problem. The problem was the moves that led them to that situation where the options were pay Fred Van Vliet, you know, 40 plus million dollars a year or let your starting point guard walk for nothing with no cap space to replace him. They shouldn't have been in that situation to begin with. And I know like we talk on this show a lot about process versus results, and we try to focus on process. And from that perspective, it's like, you know, the deals that were reportedly out there for Van Vliet at the deadline were underwhelming, to say the least. But a couple of them at least did involve late first round picks. And this is just a situation where the result is kind of all that matters. And if you lose your starting point guard with nothing coming in the door, even if you think the the process that led you to this point was more or less sound, I'm sorry, you failed. Yep. So that that was like the obviously the first bad domino falling, and I don't think it got any better when like they immediately pivoted to giving Schroeder the full mid level exception. Like 
I think Schroeder's a fine player, solid point of attack defender, does bring this element of rim pressure. Like he can get downhill off of the bounce in a way that Van Vliet could not. And a lot of players on the Raptors can't. Like that's going to be a, you know, an element I think that they'll appreciate. But he's not a good shooter. Like the the shooting downgrade from Van Vliet to Schroeder is huge on a team that was already so starved for shooting. And it's a big playmaking downgrade too. You know, and Van Vliet's not an elite playmaker by any means, but I think he's a much better playmaker than Schroeder, especially as a pick and roll playmaker. And I think about, you know, what this means for somebody like Jakob Pertl, who, again, the Raptors backed themselves into a corner to the point that they had to re-sign him. I don't think four years, 80 million for Pertl is that bad, but I think he could look a lot worse next season with Schroeder as his point guard versus Van Vliet last year, where that pick and roll with those two guys was actually super effective. So I just, I'm, I'm very down on the, this Raptors offseason so far as a whole. And a piece of that was them, you know, deciding to give the full mid-level to Schroeder, a guy who I just don't think fits there particularly well. No, I think that's really well said. And I think it, so much of it is fit, right? Like it's at the time the Raptors pivoted to signing Dennis Schroeder. He was one of, if not the best guard free agent left on the market, but that doesn't mean he was the best guard free agent left for the Raptors. Like, Schroeder at the mid-level is is fine, like you said. He gets to the rim in a way that not a lot of raps can, and Fred couldn't. He also has terrible finishing metrics at the rim. But, you know, I will grant him that at least, even when you're not finishing, just getting to the rim does open things up for your offense. Whether he can take advantage of those things as a playmaker. And solid enough defender. But the Raptors could have used someone who does the things Schroeder doesn't do well. Namely, shoot. And so it just doesn't make sense to me. And then, yeah, with respect to the Van Vliet thing, I'll, I'll just, I think you nailed it perfectly when you said it's not about the fact that they didn't want to pay him because that part is completely justifiable, not wanting to give Fred Van Vliet $42 million a year and pay him like a, right now, a top 15 player. Justifiable, they didn't want to do that. The problem is that they let him get to free agency. So all I'll say is, again, I'll repeat the same thing I said when we were having the Siakam conversation and that I wrote after the Wizards Beal trade, which is that, when you're a team in a non-competitive window, in the middle of a non-competitive window, and you have a secondary star heading towards free agency soon, and you know the only way you're going to retain him is to pay him like a primary superstar, rip the Band-Aid off, and trade them for future value while you can. Yeah, all right. So let's definitely close the book on the Raptors who... I think just come out of all this feeling like the the biggest loser of free agency so far, just because like you said at the top, Van Vliet was the best player to change teams. And that's just talent drain from the Raptors with again, nothing coming back. And whatever you think about Van Vliet as a player, the Raptors were a team that was already strapped for ball handling and shooting. And they just lost basically their best ball handler and shooter. I feel like they're going to have to pull a rabbit out of a hat to sort of salvage this, which maybe Dame is that rabbit. But uh, yeah. Okay. Any any other like uh, free agency stuff that you wanted to hit on? Uh, nothing I think we have to hit on. Just a, I, and there are a few things. I can maybe throw some stuff out there and you tell me if there's one you want to talk about before we get out of here because we are pushing up um, at our limit here. Uh, there was the Pelicans signing Herb Jones for what I think it was an interesting deal because Herb... Uh, 
essentially they declined the last team option from his you know first deal and then extended him for four years 54 i believe or 56 i can't remember now but i i'm not convinced he's worth that right now but i think he could be worth much more than that and the way i see it is that even though he had whether you want to call it a disappointing sophomore year or just a stagnant sophomore year where he didn't build on his rookie year if all he is is just an elite defensive forward who's proven he can be like a starter on a playoff caliber team for the life of his deal in the current cap climate I don't think 13 or 14 million a year for that player is that bad anyway. And if that shooting ever comes along or if he ever becomes something more than that, which I'm acknowledging might not happen, but if it does, then it becomes a team-friendly deal. And from his perspective, I think it's kind of, it's a no-brainer as well, where it's like you were looking at about 2 million or a little less guaranteed next year and you've turned that into four years and 50-something million dollars guaranteed. So I think that's cool. Um, yeah. Shoot so, like 35, 36% yeah. from three and you're golden, yeah. you know? Yeah. Because he can cut, he can pass a yep. little bit, like 100%. And then, okay, I'll, I'll throw some out there and then you just tell me if there's any you actually think are worth talking about before we get out of here. Uh, the Nets giving Cam Johnson big money. The Wizards re-signing Kuzma when a lot of people thought he might be lost for nothing. The Knicks giving DiVincenzo a fairly sizable deal. The Cavs adding shooting or the Suns doing what they did with limited flexibility. Let's go with the Suns. Cool. Uh, I, I'm reluctant to give too much credit to a team just like using only minimums to sign players who were, you know, were signing minimum deals for a reason. But I do think under the circumstances that Suns did about as well as you could have expected. I do feel like this happens a lot where it's like, oh, wow, like the, like these are actual NBA players and you sign them for the minimum. That's a great job. And then it's like, you know, the playoffs roll around and six of the seven guys they signed are going to be complete non-factors and depth is still going to be an issue for this team. But I think, look, Eric Gordon, Utah Watanabe, Drew Eubanks, Chemetsu Metu, Keita Bates-Diop, you know, all of those guys I think could be pretty useful. And then re-signing Josh Koji and Damian Lee, who were on minimum deals without bird rights, like being able to retain those guys that I don't know what they wound up getting, but I'm just assuming it's like the 20% raise on their minimum contracts to stick around. They they built out a functional bench. And like, you know, one of the, they lost Tory Craig, which I don't love, but, you know, Bates Diop could potentially step into that role. He shot 39% from deep last year. Another guy who can cut versatile defender, him and Utah both, right? Like those guys can knock down a quarter, a corner three, and defend multiple positions. Like either of those guys could slot into that starting lineup and stick there. And then in terms of backup center options, which they had none of, I think between Metu and Eubanks, like they're going to be able to get 12 minutes of competent backup center play. Uh, and that's that's all they really needed to do. And then it's kind of a, a we'll see on Eric Gordon because yeah, at his best, he's like a knockdown three-point shooter who can hold up on switches and actually like be a, a plus on defense. But I would say for the majority of last season, he looked very much not like that guy and looked pretty well washed. So that might be one where it's like the name jumps out and you're like, wow, huge get signing Eric Gordon for the minimum. And then again, like by the end of the season, he's not contributing anything. But for now, I'd say that the guys they got for what they had available to offer is a, a pretty nice bounty. Agreed. Um, were there any of those, the other ones that, that you wanted to hit on or? 
No, not particularly. Like, I think they're various forms of interesting, but not enough where I think we have to talk about them after 90 minutes. Yeah. Okay. So uh, let's leave that 90 minutes there. And um, I think we've made up for missing last week and not putting an episode out by uh, giving you this extra long wrap up of uh, the first week or so of, uh, you know, the, the NBA's 2023 transaction window. So surely more to come soon when, uh, you know, maybe the Dame situation resolves itself or the Harden situation resolves itself. But I get the feeling like we could be waiting a while to find out where those guys are going. Agreed. Do, do, should we do a fan shout out? Uh, you, let's save it for next app when we have more time at the end. Okay. I feel like we do this a lot, though. We're like, ah, we'll save it to next time. We'll have way more time. Next episode, we're going to be 85 minutes deep, and we're going to have to put that off again. But we have those shout-outs banked. We will get to them. We promise. Thank you all for listening and bearing with us if you've made it this far. <laughs> we really appreciate it. And uh, can't wait to come back again and break down more off-season goings-on. But for now, we're putting a bow on this. So for Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon. Pound the Rock. Thank you